you know, if you're having to devote all this time and energy to just marketing yourself, just staying visible, how much time are you not spending on developing your craft? Hey, streamers and dreamers, my name is Otto Kent, and you're listening to The Week by Telecom Electronic Beats. It's Thursday, July 13th, and this is your weekly update on music, culture, and what's next. So it's festival season, and it's time to argue with friends about who hides the stuff in their shoe or bras and who forgot the camping lanterns at home. But for every fit check and video of a killer drop festival goers are taking, there are twice as many in the drafts folders for the headlining artists playing you tunes. DJs just want to look good on social media as much as you might. And of course, they want their followers to see them playing to big crowds with big energy. If you're a DJ and can crank out some quality content, it can make it seem like you're winning festival season or just crushing it in general. But if you're a DJ and you suck at social media or if you just don't care, you might not even have a chance to be a professional DJ because people simply don't know you. An article with the title, Being a DJ is Embarrassing, made a lot of waves this month. At least in my social media bubble, there was a lot of chit-chat about it. It touched on how the general public views DJs and about how DJs are stuck making increasingly more mainstream and trendy social media content in order to be seen and heard and booked. Of course, the title's a little clickbaity, but it had its effect. People had really strong feelings about it on both sides of the argument. Being a DJ is Embarrassing was written by Sean Ronaldo. He's a music journalist based in Barcelona with a laundry list of accolades working on documenting and critiquing music culture. The article is an essay from Sean's newsletter called First Floor. There he writes about everything electronic music, and he also just published a book on Velocity Press that collects essays from that very newsletter called First Floor, Volume 1, Reflections on Electronic Music. Sean was just on tour in Europe promoting the book, and full disclosure, I've known Sean for quite some time. We used to throw parties together in San Francisco in the 2000s, but I've never been on the journalist side of the table in an interview with Sean, so I was quite eager to invite him into our studio to go a bit deeper about what exactly it is DJs really have to be embarrassed about. Sean Ronaldo in the studio with us today. Hello. Being a DJ is embarrassing. That was the tagline for the article, which I now know is one of the most read articles you've published in the newsletter. Yeah, I've been doing First Floor for three and a half years now. And within a week of me publishing this, it became one of the most popular articles that I've ever written. And admittedly, the title is a bit provocative, but, uh, you know, a bit provocative. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I got so many notifications on my phone, but our relationship has like uh, traversed many different scenes and times. So now I get the notification. Have you read this yet? It's outrageous. And before it was like, what's up with your friend, Sean? (laughs) Now people don't even know that we know each other. So I was like, oh, I I always know when a good article of yours is come out because I get at least three WhatsApp messages being like, what's up with this? Well, the funny part is that article was actually inspired by another friend of ours, Matrix Man, another San Francisco refugee. And it started because I saw a tweet of his where he was talking about being embarrassed to say that he's a professional DJ and that he was thinking of picking up his guitar again. 
And I just thought it sort of tapped into a vibe and a sentiment that I've heard a lot of DJs and electronic music people talking about over the past like six months or a year and just launched into one of my usual long form essays and really seemed to touch a nerve. Well, that title definitely goes for the jugular in a, in a good way. But the article itself actually, as you always do, um, lays out a fair argument for and against what potentially is going on behind the saucy title. So what is going on? Uh, how do you feel about this right now? What What is embarrassing about being a DJ? Well, I think it's embarrassing for DJs of a certain age. And People like Matrix Man, let's just say anyone over 30 who started DJing or anyone who started before the pandemic probably came into electronic music during a time where it was at least the goal was to be this sort of semi-anonymous figure DJing in the corner. That was the ideal. Like, you're just in the corner playing good tunes, making the dance floor go, and that's what's driving the culture. It wasn't a personality-driven experience being a DJ. And sort of in the wake of the pandemic, we've seen this sort of infiltration of, you know, what might be called like influencer culture coming into DJs and the ways that you have to promote yourself increasingly involve social media, especially Instagram, which is visually driven. Bookings are based not only on your follower account, but basically the persona that you create, whether that's being political, just taking really great photos, being like, you know, quote unquote sexy, being a member of a certain community, whether that's geographically, demographically, or whatever it may be. And I think a lot of DJs, you know, people that have been doing this for five years, 10 years, 20 years are like, this is not the game I signed up for. And all of a sudden they feel obligated to create content instead of focusing on their craft. And they're just, yeah, feeling a little out of place, feeling resentment against this new generation of DJs who've sort of changed the rules without asking anyone. And I think that's what's embarrassing about it for these people trying to catch up with what they feel they have to do to stay relevant. You did say the obligation, and, but I know you touch on the algorithm and the ways in which companies who own these spaces that um, independent artists feel obligated to promote themselves on. Uh, the obligation is a bit of a gray area because there's not really any other way these days for independent artists to get their, the word out about what they do, build an artist story. I mean, even the artwork on a record is gone. Um, but I wanted to talk to you now that you're out promoting a book. So you're actually kind of in the promotion game right now. The selfie conundrum. I mean, Sean Ronaldo does not like to take a selfie. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but the algorithm celebrates, especially on Instagram, which I think is a, a majority of where this uh, article stems its argument around. It really bases itself around seeing someone's face. I took one selfie when I got to London and I saw the physical book for the first time and took a mirror selfie with myself in the book. But it is funny. I do have a bit of sort of new sympathy for artists because I did a photo shoot before the book was coming out because I knew I'd have to do press and do some posts. And, you know, I got like four or five good photos out of it. And now that I've used pretty much all of them, I'm like, oh man, I should have taken shots with other outfits or, oh, I should have done it in a different setting. I'm sick of seeing myself with my arms crossed in this blue shirt again. And 
I'm operating at such a smaller scale than someone who's right. a touring DJ playing, you know, eight gigs a month and having to do festival announcements and radio show announcements and release announcements. And it's like a job. It's another job on top of actually being an artist. I couldn't imagine doing this while also playing gigs, traveling, and trying to make music. If you're a producer as well, it's really taxing. It's also interesting that what we learn about artists right now is shaped by something mathematical. Absolutely. And you have to basically, the content you create, you have to aim it towards this moving target. No one knows the exact rules of the algorithm. And but every six months, it feels like they change. And it's like, oh, this kind of photo works. And everything used to be really curated and picture perfect. And now everyone's doing these messy photo dumps. And that's the way to go. And it's strange. Like, I don't know how we got to a point where all of these independent artists are basically required to be sort of like media analysts and content creators on top of their craft. And it's not necessarily good for the art, for the end product. You know, if you're having to devote all this time and energy to just marketing yourself, just staying visible, how much time are you not spending on developing your craft? There is an influencer that you and I, both our generation, has watched kind of play around with how to become a not only an icon, but also to like bring audiences in through different waves of their career. And that is Diplo. That is true. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I think he was someone who was way ahead of the curve on the idea of creating a persona for himself. And Granted, that persona is somewhat problematic at times, and at times it feels like, you know, the white man coming into the brown person's space and, you know, soaking up all their music and, you know, getting uh, brownie points for hanging out with other cultures and then moving on to the next one. It's a bit locust-like behavior, <laughs> um, but he's also, I will say to his credit, he does it with a sense of humor and he knows how to do things like posting a shirtless selfie of his abs, but then like make a joke out of it as well. Right. And he, you know, refers to himself as like a redneck and white trash. And at the same time, he's hanging out with the most famous pop stars on the planet. And people like this stuff. Humans have always looked up to celebrities. Like right. even before modern media was a thing, there was celebrities that people idolized. And Diplo became that. He's one of the most famous certainly one of the most famous DJs in the world. And he's kind of become one of the most famous musicians in the world. He's essentially a pop star who right. happens to DJ. Absolutely. I, I think it's interesting because I was thinking about, okay, so who, if anyone, does Sean actually kind of like the way that they have transformed themselves into becoming a avatar character online? So I'm going to ask you that question. Now that we've talked about someone who's very obviously problematic, who who do you like that's doing the Instagram DJ thing. One person that comes to mind is physical therapy. Yes, and we love Daniel. Perhaps it's because if you think about his origins and coming out of like ghetto gothic, that was very like MySpace era being online. That was like as, as online of a party as you can imagine circa 2010. So he's always had like a certain savviness, but at the same time, when people think about physical therapy now, he's not just like a joke. He's not just like a meme lord. Even though he posts memes and makes fun of himself and 
posts photos of himself in the gym. He's still this super respected DJ and producer, and his parties are parties that credible artists want to play at at nowadays, even and it's crazy because they sell out even when it's relatively unknown guests. And I think he's really made that transition fairly gracefully in a way that lots of other 30-something DJs have not. You know, when I watch him, it doesn't feel like, you know, Gen Xer struggling to make hashtag content for his Instagram. It feels like a natural extension of his personality. It helps also that he's just a naturally hilarious person. He is naturally hilarious, but what he also has always done really, really well is um, build community around what he's doing, but also help others build community. And I think that's also what's successful about what he does online. But I also wanted to ask you about your writing and your, your brand new book. First of all, I know that this article didn't make it into your book. No, because I had to finish the book, you know, a few months ago so they could send it to the printer. So it's not in there because this article was published, I think, a month or so ago, maybe six weeks ago. And I finished the book in March or April. And it wasn't a marketing ploy to drop this article right when your, when your book was going out. It was not a marketing ploy. No, I know ploy. Sean well enough to know that it's not that calculated. <laughs> no, I mean, not to disappoint everyone. People ask me all the time, like, oh, do you really plan out all of your essays in advance? Like, you must have a calendar. And honestly, it gets to be Monday most weeks, and I'm like, oh, no, I need to write something for tomorrow. And I think that helps, actually, because it kind of taps into, like, what's going on? What are people talking about in dance music right now or electronic music? And I think, yeah, that sort of vibe of like temporality, is that the right word? But the fact that it feels current and taps into present conversations, um, but does it in a more long form way. Because social media, where a lot of these conversations play out these days, so often boils down to this sucks or let's dunk on someone. And I want to go deeper than that. Like even when I don't like something, as I said before, I just want to understand it and reckon with it and hopefully make other people ask these similar questions. So maybe the optimistic side of this piece is that hopefully the people that are reading it get a better understanding of why a younger generation, because potentially you're speaking to those 35 plus people in this article, uh, that they not only have an understanding of it, but create some bridges uh, and some comparisons and maybe even some mentor energy to to make the newer generation feel involved and uh, heard in a way. Yeah, like no younger generation is going to respond well to being shouted down or being told that they're screwing up something. At the same time, like there are younger people that read the piece too. And I would also love it if they understand why older generations might be upset by what's happening. Because like there is a tendency in youth culture, and this is pre this generation forever, people get into something and it's like their understanding of a culture starts on the day that they got into it. And it's almost like the history of everything that came before isn't that important. And I think that's just a normal human behavior. But this is a culture that's been around for decades and does have a history and did have ways of doing things that existed for reasons, economic, social, community-wise. Um, dance music did used to be a safe space. like It used to be a place that was largely opposed by design to the mainstream. And the fact that 
that's no longer the dominant dynamic is fine. I think it's fine that it's changing, but I also think that the new people should understand that it's changed and that maybe it's not a bad idea to at least be aware of and respect some of the traditions and people that came before them. Well, I think, you know, if you're 35 plus and you've been a naysayer online, go find someone who's younger than you and leave an interesting comment on their content. You know, don't disjoint yourself from the conversation. Uh, I think this article was a real fire starter. So thank you for putting it out there because uh, it's better to be having the conversation than to just be talking smack. I agree. I think sometimes just asking questions is one of the most important things. I mean, I get flack sometimes where people are like, oh, well, you're citing this problem. How would you fix it? And I'm like, I don't know how to resolve intergenerational tension globally between Gen Z and millennials and everyone older than them. But we can talk about it. We can at least look at it in a way that goes beyond dunking on each other online and memes and maybe foster a little bit of conversation and connection and move things forward more constructively. Well, we definitely had some constructive conversation today. And I think if people, listeners want to get a little bit more out of where you are taking your constructive conversation, they can check out First Floor Volume 1, Reflections on Electronic Music Culture. That's the book if you read books. Otherwise, if you want something a little bit briefer, you can join Sean on his weekly, weekly, bi-weekly? Weekly, let's weekly just say. Weekly newsletter called First Floor. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. It's been great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. So now let's look at the other headlines that mattered this week. Tomorrowland goes TikTok. So if DJs are influencers, Tomorrowland is where they go to get their own reality show. The festival is responsible for some of the most audacious DJ set designs and memeable content. The Tomorrowland Festival in Belgium starts next week, and they just announced that TikTok will be their official content partner. The stage design at Tomorrowland is always over the top and usually goes viral on TikTok anyway without much help. But now there will be a lot more behind the scenes content and more than 20 performances will be live streamed on TikTok directly, including sets by Steve Aoki, Armin Van Buren and <laughs> the Amber Bros. Excuse me, Amber Bros? Bruce, Amber Bruce. Because I said Bruce, but actually, it's, uh, it's Amber Bruce. He's correct. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, it's correct, correct, correct. So, aside from Sensation White, which if you've never looked it up, you can thank me later. Tomorrowland is the first time I remember a festival creating a name for itself from the DJ sets being recorded and shared, which I think was mostly on YouTube. The spectacle of it all, which includes a lot of DJs in costumes and pyrotechnics, caused a bit of controversy in the underground. That was after RA released a mini doc about Seth Troxler, where he spoke his mind on the predominantly EDM sound the festival is known for. It's a must see and we'll put it in the show notes. TikTok has already done these partnerships in the past with festivals like Montreux Jazz Festival and Glastonbury. Getting Tomorrowland on board is part of their wider efforts around electronic music. The Tomorrowland hashtag is already huge on TikTok with almost 3 billion views, so this will likely supersize that. But as a fan of the ridiculousness of TikTok lives, a lot of questions remain. Will you be able to tip DJs during the live stream? Will Seth Troxler be invited into a stream or even Dehoopsha or Doja Cat for that matter? Can fans put Clapton or Boris Breccia masks on other DJs like they can the cowboy hat and sunglasses in other streams? Or even better, can we take the mask off for a tip? 
Only time will tell. In the meantime, here is hoping comments are turned on. My texting fingers are ready. Raise the planet, we did. So, speaking of big festivals, last weekend I was at Rave the Planet in Berlin, where the cell phone reception was so bad, a live stream would have been near too impossible. This year's event, or demonstration for that matter, sparked so much controversy beforehand, it had the city in a tizzy up to the morning of the event, wondering if it would be allowed to take place. Frankly, this week, some people are still convinced it didn't take place at all. To give you a short rundown, just a few days before the date, Berlin police were not convinced there would be enough security. And the event also apparently didn't book enough medical workers. There was lots of people from other countries posting on social media, unsure whether to come or not. It was super chaotic. The comments were kind of hilarious on posts. And in the end, the organizers were able to find a private medical service that would provide enough helpers. And the police and the fire department approved it. So here is my recap. It was blazing hot. There was a hardstyle gabber float with an insane sound system. Some bros were climbing lampposts and Tiergarten became a giant chill out area for the day. With the Brandenburg Gate and Ziegazoyle in the background, if you squinted your eyes, it felt like the long gone Love Parade era was back for a day. 20 floats drove a similar route to the one Love Parade took in the 90s. And according to police, there was 200,000 ravers in attendance. And the police wrote a pretty strange tweet. Don't get naked at hashtag rave the planet. Some participants have been complaining to us. Well, what's left to do if it's getting too hot? In the end, the event was peaceful and sufficiently trashy with plenty of people on the hunt for fawn bottles. Who threw their grandma at pink? One thing I didn't see at Rave the Planet, which seems to be a thing right now, is people throwing stuff on stage. Just this weekend, Harry Styles was hit by a flying object in the face, not Harry's face. A few weeks ago, BB Rexa was injured by a cell phone being thrown on stage, and then there was a strange incident at a pink show in London. Someone threw a bag of their mother's ashes on stage. And then there was the Lil Nas X incident. At a concert in Sweden, a fan threw a sex toy on stage. He grabbed it and paused his set and asked, Who played pussy on stage? As funny as this might seem, this trend is really not cool with more and more artists getting injured. And there are people who are reading much more into it, such as content creator and psychotherapist MJ Corey. She's behind the Instagram and TikTok channel Kardashian Colloquium, and she recently broke down why we are seeing more and more stuff being thrown on stage. We get our kicks in like 30 second videos, the more scandalizing and dramatic and edgy and discourse inspiring the better. She also thinks algorithms have fostered an attraction to conflict. New levels of aggression are being taken to real life situations where someone is consuming a performer that they keep up with on the stage in person and like can't handle the experience and needs to break that wall and, and be seen and heard through an object that they throw. This is really bad. So MJ Corey killing the analysis as usual. I really recommend you follow her channels. She's amazing. But the bottom line is don't throw things at artists on stage. Protests in France. As you might have heard, France has been hit by a wave of political unrest and protests. The protests began shortly after 17-year-old Nahel M was shot by police in Nanterre two weeks ago. That sparked protests against police brutality all over the country, resulting in curfews, fires, and over 3,000 arrests. 
And the riots have had a huge impact on the cultural scene as well. Many events were canceled, for example, the Pride March in Marseille. Cancellations of this type should be applauded, not only if they are making a political statement or just looking out for the safety of concert goers. But of course, the halting of summer events can have a huge financial loss to the artistic communities they support. Regardless, power to the people. So with all that said, it's recommendation time. This week with Meg Ten. She's a DJ and she organizes and curates the party series Homies. They center female and LGBTQ artists. And as you might know, Pride Week is coming up in Berlin. So I asked her about her favorite closing track for a set at Pride. Hey, I'm Meg Ten, AKA Gizem. And if you ask me, the favorite or the best track to close a Pride set in Berlin is from Chico Sonido, um, Tattoo X Gasolina. It's a mashup of all the things she said and Gasolina. And it always gets the crowd super hype. And I love it so, so much because I love reggaeton. And then also like the classic, all the things she said track is just magical. And yeah, I can only recommend this. Bye. I'm feeling it, Meg. If you are in Berlin for Pride, you can see Meg and other amazing queer artists play at the Electronic Beats Party at Plata on July 20th. Check the show notes for deets. So that's all for the week this week. Thank you for locking in. I'll be here next Thursday. Take care and remember to stop scrolling. The Week is a production by Telecom Electronic Beats and ACB Stories. 